You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome to episode 323 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Uh, I'm joined today by David Grubbs, who for a few more weeks is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David, how's it going? Pretty well. Things are frenetic as usual. My parents, of all people, wanted to know if you had moved to Birmingham yet. And I said, you know, I don't know that the semester's even over. <laughs> no, no. Uh, like commencement isn't even until uh, Saturday, and then grades aren't even due until a week from today. Right. So, so certainly not. I feel like people who aren't in academia have little idea of how things actually work in academia. Anyway, uh, someone who is not in academia is our third host for today, uh, Matthew Block, who is the editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine. How's it going, Matthew? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right had a busy weekend cleaning up a bit of a flood in the basement but other than that doing okay <laughs> well um we're reading a section from thucydides history of the peloponnesian war we're reading a uh, book three chapters 82 to 85 and it's the kind of tail end of his discussion of the corseran civil war um Thucydides is the second major Greek historian. The first, Herodotus, is appropriately enough called the father of history. Thucydides, on the other hand, is sometimes called the father of scientific history. David, what's the difference between his approach and Herodotus's? And for that matter, how is what Thucydides does in History of the Peloponnesian War different from what we tend to think of as historiography? Yeah, so everything that I say now, let's preface with the... Uh, I'm neither a classicist nor the son of a classicist, though my dad was part of a Latin club in high school, I found out. Um, so that's neat. So Herodotus, I've gotten actually got a chance to venture into in uh, a, a graduate course uh, in the fall. But that was my first my first chance of covering Herodotus, either as a student or a teacher. So what I discovered is Herodotus covers just broad swaths of time and culture. Uh, he'll say, um, I, I'm going to start at the story at this point, uh, and then some some bit of, of backstory will be his excuse to lateral into talking about Egyptians for a whole book or something. Um, he ventures into geography, comparative religion, anthropology, natural philosophy along the way. A lot of his sources seem to be oral, um, sometimes from individuals uh, who are reporting first or second hand knowledge or hearsay. Um, sometimes he will claim to uh, be telling you what he has observed himself. 
but more often it seems that he's relying on mass traditions like legends or sort of uh, the folklore that explains customs. And, and at times like that, he'll say um, the Spartans say this or uh, the Egyptians say this. Uh, sometimes, uh, as I said, he claims to have seen or heard things uh, directly, uh, especially in the course of travel. Um, there are disputes about how extensive his travels really were, but since we don't really know a whole heck of a lot about his life, it's kind of hard to argue one way or another beyond um, internal evidence, which sometimes is less easy to read than, than you might think. Um, the fact that uh, Herodotus is associated with uh, the Greek colony of uh, Halicarnassus, um, which was during his lifetime under the under Persian control while being culturally Greek, um, did mean that he was sort of geographically poised to be able to uh, represent the two sides of the Persian Greek conflict, which is you know much of what uh, his his history is about sort of studying the stage for and then describing. Um, Thucydides is really interested in good stories. Uh, he's interested in in interesting people. He's interested in uh, strange customs that are different from what he as a Greek is is used to. Um, he's uh, I, I kind of think of him as maybe not the father of history per se, but certainly the father of the History Channel. Um, and I I like Herodotus a lot, even though um, everyone who who seems to know better um, suggests that I oughtn't to take too much of my actual knowledge of the past from from him. Uh, he rather sitting... credulously reports a number of things that he might have been incredulous about. Is that is yes. that fair to say? Yeah, uh, you know, he he will sometimes you know just say. You know, Egyptians say this and just sort of leave it there. But I, I think sometimes whenever he, he attributes things to other people say this, just kind of just kind of hear him whispering. But I don't necessarily say it. Um, sometimes he will present contradictory information from different sources. Uh, and sometimes he'll actually weigh it and decide what he thinks is most credible. And sometimes he'll just defer judgment Um you know, kind of saying, you know, here's the four different versions. Who can know? Um, I, I kind of like that side of Herodotus, uh, just sort of, you know, letting us know that, um, you know, history making is messy. And in some cases, he hasn't presumed to make uh, to make a decision for us. Instead, he's just sort of saying, here's 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 the omelet and the shells and all the rest of it. And good luck. Thucydides claims a lot more rigor in weighing his sources. Um, he even says that uh, he didn't, uh, uh, he doesn't even trust his own eyewitness testimony. This is from uh, his his first book, um, the first book of the Peloponnesian War, uh, chapter chapter one. Um, 
He says, with reference to the narrative of events, far from permitting myself to derive it from the first source that came to hand, I did not even trust my own impressions, but in rest, it rest partly on what I saw myself, partly on what others saw for me, the accuracy of the report always being tried by the most severe and detailed test possible. My conclusions have cost me some labor for the want of coincidence between accounts of the same occurrences by different eyewitnesses arising sometimes from imperfect memory and sometimes from undue partiality from one side or the other. So he, he at least states at the outset that what he's attempted to do is not only to find eyewitness sources for uh, his histories as much as as much as was possible. Um, in some cases, he's talking to people's grandchildren, right, um, for things that happened significantly before events that it was possible to find <laughs> living witnesses for. Um, but even then, he's balancing the different um, eyewitness at first-hand or second-hand testimony that he's got um, against each other, trying to find the places where it sinks. Um, and again, not even necessarily privileging, um, according to his own testimony, uh, what he himself saw if someone else had a better vantage point. Uh, one of the features of History of the Peloponnesian War is its speeches, uh, which he says uh, he, he makes specific note about the speeches in chapter one. Um, he says that uh, he heard some of them and in other cases uh, he he had other sources for those speeches. Um, he isn't he isn't claiming to be presenting them verbatim, um, but he is trying to hear adhere as close as possible, it says, to the general sense of what they really said. This is important, I think, for Thucydides as an Athenian. He has a uh, a strong – he sees a strong connection between um, political rhetoric, uh, between political speech acts, and between um, policy decisions and the, um, the movement of the will of the people. So for him, if something important happens, uh, it probably happened as a result of a speech. Sure. <laughs> and, it, and if he doesn't have necessarily the, the speech verbatim, then he'll have like what, what were the general points that were argued and he'll um, – it seems to be try to, try to write you know, his, his best version of the speech that would have made those points and accomplished what it did. So there's um, a sense in which a great deal of history of the Peloponnesian War is – a kind of historical fiction, right? Like he's, he's trying to be accurate, yeah. but at the same time, it's, it's largely his words. And what's interesting about that to me is the history of the Peloponnesian War is known mostly for a couple of speeches or a couple of dialogues. So like the thing that's coming down to us from Thucydides is Thucydides, albeit Thucydides right. attempting to rewrite speeches made by other people. Though in some cases, you know, we got to reckon on... Um, the fact that this was a strongly oral culture in which uh, remembering rhetorical performances, especially public speeches, was uh, the sort of thing that was often expected of students. Um, if you think of the, uh, the beginning of uh, Plato's Socratic dialogue, the Phaedrus, um, it begins with uh, – uh, Socrates, um, protege, Phaedr uh, protege Phaedrus, uh, showing up with a speech that he'd heard, um, 
a Rhetor present, um, which he has himself memorized and can now present. Uh, so uh, something like the, the funeral oration of Pericles, uh, which is one of the, the most significant that come from the history of the Peloponnesian War, that was on the occasion of an enormous state funeral for the Athenian dead. Everybody who was anybody was there. Um, it was this, and Pericles was the most important person in Athens. It's the kind of it's the kind of speech that you could imagine. There were people taking notes for posterity, and people were listening closely. And uh, particularly if they had had um, any kind of liberal arts training, um, they would have been attentive to things like rhetorical turns of phrase and uh, the argument of his. Uh, of, of that speech. So, you know, I, I think there's some some speeches in the Peloponnesian War were probably much more likely to be having pretty close to what it was. But even so, he's not claiming that it's letter perfect. Um, and I think he's he's honest enough at the outset to say that. Uh, one of the features of Thucydides is that he tends to focus on a human centered um, theory of historical causality. While there are temples and religious rights are important throughout the history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, uh, I don't recall very much since that there's a divine agency in things. There are a few places where people, um, particular persons or populations, are reckoned as, uh, in some sense, cursed. You know, kind of, kind of like uh, Oedipus in in uh, Sophocles, uh, but that that uh that decision that certain people are cursed and, and and ought to be treated in particular ways um is discussed in in Thucydides as something that arises within how a community is behaving right there's no you know gods being lowered down by cranes to declare it so um instead things happen in the history of the Peloponnesian war um because of political jockeying because of uh, military power, social power, economic power, um, and vices like pride and ambition and just venal greed. In terms of how he differs from the way we do history um, or historical scholars do history now, um, historiography, uh, that's that's really a good question because most of the history that I read is – the primary sources of older histories. So um, I am less schooled in the ways in which we don't do things like Thucydides now. Um, I would imagine a certain a certain amount of the the reconstruction that he does of speeches and things like that would be regarded as as right out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I had in mind. The kind of historical fiction quality of the of mm-hmm. the Peloponnesian Wars. I mean, he does it less than Herodotus. Yes, that. well, that's true, and I think that's why he gets called the father of scientific history. I mean, there's really no comparison between the two of them. You read Herodotus, and, I mean, there's history in there, but it's it's like reading a book of myths at some points. And Thucydides, there's yeah. much less of that. He seems to believe Agamemnon was a real person, but yeah. there's there's nothing quite so outlandish in um, in history of the Peloponnesian War as there, there is in Herodotus's histories. Herodotus is much more fun. I, you know, I used to think that David, but I, I think I like Thucydides better. I, I, um, I, I find Herodotus to be exhausting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, I've yeah, I, 
Yeah, I, I love the kind of thing that Herodotus is. I like the big, tangly, it's going all over the place, um, hard to corral him as he gets attracted by every bright thing he happens to walk past. I, I, I like that kind of, that kind of big, big elephant of a text that's <laughs> just sprawls all over the place. But uh, I also recognize that that's not a, Maybe not a common taste. Well, uh, we're doing Herodotus for core curriculum, uh, so I'm sure our, our listeners will will look forward to hearing what you have to say uh, about him there. Uh, Matthew, do you have anything to add to David's very exhaustive uh, treatment of Thucydides? I mean, he's covered most of it. I think pretty much all of it. The one thing I might just add at the end is the. Uh, the idea here that uh, Herodot, uh, pardon me, Thucydides also makes some moral judgments on on these events, um, which would differ from, you know, the strictly historical hands-off kind of thing we might expect today, um, because he has a an, an understanding that the things he's talking about also have an impact on the future as well. So he's got a line where he says. He, But if he who desires to have before his eyes a true picture of the events which have happened and of the like event which may be expected to happen hereafter in the order of human things, um, if, if that kind of reader sees him as valuable, then he's happy, he says. Um, so this, this concept that he's writing a history not just to catalog and tell interesting things um, the way Herodotus might have done. Uh, but he's also not just telling the history for the sake of recording history. He thinks it has an impact on the world that will be. And by reading it, we may come to these human things, as he says, um, more equipped to deal with them. Right. Which is the dominant mode of history, from my understanding, up until like 1960. I, I mm-hmm. mean, that, that's something that's something you see well into the 20th century with um, oh, what are they called? The Durants? Is that their name? Ariel and oh. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong Will Will Durant. Maybe is is the guy's name. Anyway, th- those those books are also very uh, moralistic, in in just the way Thucydides is, just the way Edward Gibbon is, just the way most historians are until this ideal of objectivity uh, developed. Now I'm not a historian of historiography, so I, I can't pinpoint it more than that. But I do know that that is a that is a change that comes late in the game. Um, and, and Thucydides is really pioneering the way history is done for a very, very long time. Well, the section of History of the Peloponnesian War that we read for today deals with a part of the Peloponnesian War known as the Corsarian Civil War or the Corsarian Revolution. Matthew, what background can you give us about this event without having to rehearse the whole very complicated history of the Peloponnesian War? Yeah, I'll try to, to just kind of outline this briefly. Um, it's important to note at this time in history that the Greeks have recently fended off two invasions by the Persian Empire. And in the midst of those kind of battles, uh, Sparta and Athens kind of rise to prominence as the the leaders of the Greek world. Um, and they, they kind of start, uh, Athens in particular, starts to form a, a, an empire of sorts. And in time, these two powers begin to step on each other's toes, which is precisely what we see in the the Corsarian Revolution. Um, so Corsera, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, had been a colony of the Corinthians, and Corinth 
and Corinth was an ally of Sparta. And uh, at some point, Corsera uh, had tried to kind of throw off Corinthian influence. Um, and in that period of time, they got support from Athens and Athens stepped in to protect them from the Corinthians. And uh, that's that's kind of the, the immediate lead up to the current situation. So in these early skirmishes, the Corinthians actually take a number of Corsarians Cors- prisoner. And that's important because about six years later, we get this uh, revolution in Corsera. The Corinthians release these prisoners back to Corsera on bail. But Thucydides tells us that these prisoners were reintroduced with a mission, that they were supposed to work to influence the city to reject Athens and return to an alliance with Corinth. Uh, To that end, they whip up a trial against an Athenian proxy leader. Um, The Senate kind of rejects this uh, and decides to remain pro-Athens. And at this point, there's a a big kind of kerfuffle. The the pro-Corinth party successfully conspires to kill the Athenian proxy leader and 60 others at the Senate. Um, Things quickly descend at this point into an all-out civil war with the Democrats or the commoners uh, supporting an alliance with Athens, uh, while the aristocrats or the oligarchs, depending on your translation, um, wish to return to this alliance with Corinth. So eventually... Uh, the aristocrats are driven out. Uh, they call for help from Corinth and Sparta, but they don't really receive direct aid in in trying to take back the city. Uh, the Peloponnesian forces do stage a successful attack on Athenian and Corsarian ships, but they don't they don't ever come and try to take over the city. So uh, they eventually flee uh, when the Athenian fleet kind of starts to arrive en masse, and uh, the Democrats therefore prevail over the oligarchs. Uh, there's the surviving enemies of the Democrats are rounded up and slaughtered, uh, including those who had sought refuge in the temple of Hera. And uh, Thucydides tells us that while the purported charge uh, for killing all these people was was treason, he, he mentions that some were also murdered for personal reasons or because they had owed money uh, or because uh, the the, uh, the winners had owed money to the victims. Um, it then, as a result, uh, we, we see the war become this cover for personal revenge and gain, as well as this this uh, battle over the the political soul of the city. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of the road um, that leads to the situations Thucydides is ca- commenting on in the passage we're discussing today. Yeah, I think that was very thorough. Grubbs, would you add anything to it? Just that traditionally Corsera is also the land of the Phaeacians from the Odyssey. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, there's uh, the one of the things that the Corsarians uh, prided themselves in is uh, in identifying their their land with the with that sort of magical, wondrous land of the Phaeacians, um, visited by that great you know that great Homeric hero. Um, you know, that was disputed even in ancient times. But if you asked the uh, uh, Corsera's, oh, oh, who, who, who would you call it? Their tourism board. <laughs> um, it would be on all the it would be on all the brochures. Sure. Well, David, how does the revolution that the Cities describes in these sections compare to the revolutions you're familiar with in the modern world, be they the American or French revolutions or more recent ones like the Arab Spring. 
in other words, how much can we take Thucydides as a general guide on this subject, especially since that's what he wants us to take him as, right? Like he's not just reporting on this one thing that happened. He's extrapolating to general human situations. So can we take him as a guide to general human situations on the subject of revolution? Well, he does seem to be getting at a dynamic that has shown up in um, different cultures that have the uh, that sense of a common a co- the, the the commons who nonetheless are able to band together into some into some kind of a, a politically viable power, and then on the other side, um, an oligarchy uh, that's usually of a kind of hereditary aristocracy um, that cultures that have those kinds of dynamics um you'll see often i i think the thucydides observation um about the way that this plays out um that there there are some uh the french revolution i think seems to seems to fit that pretty pretty closely um the peasants revolts of the 14th century are uh are somewhat in that vein as well, though the peasants did not necessarily have any any sort of political voice. Um, they, I wouldn't call them a political party, but um, that that kind of um, anarchic rise um, that is uh, paralleled by a brutal and and you know brutality on one side and brutality on the other. Um, you see that in the peasants' revolts of the 14th century. Um, the closest parallel that I could think of was what d- went down in Florence during Dante's lifetime, uh, in which literally personal f- personal feuds between uh, what had been um, sort of inner inner factions of that larger flash, uh, faction of the um, the the Guelphs right you know in the in the prior generations it's Guelphs versus Ghibellines um, by the time Dante's coming along it's no more Ghibellines around just just Guelphs but even they have divided into um, kind of an, an inner faction uh, a couple of inner factions that then Go back to, if I remember rightly, some kind of some accusations about murders. Um, I, I don't have all of the all the details uh, at my at my fingertips, but the the real parallel that that I that I saw between it was the way in which these internal factions um, had aligned themselves with rival foreign allies who were going to use. Um, yeah, so that the the rival factions inside the community are using their ties to outside allies um, to to sort of fuel that inner dispute, but also the out the those those outside foreign allies are rivals with one another and are using this inner dispute um, as as their own opportunity. So so that kind of inside outside uh, dynamic is. Is something else that 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 he that he's paying attention to that I think is worth paying attention to. Uh, that is one thing that shows up in the American Revolution, particularly in the role of the French, um, kind of allying themselves with uh, the um, the American colony colonies, um, the revolutionists uh, there. The American Revolution, otherwise though, doesn't necessarily look much like. 
um, the Corsairan Revolution, at least in my judgment, um, mainly because uh, there wasn't really a landed aristocracy in the colonies. There were certainly loyalists, but um, it wasn't as if the colonies had been divided into um, landed estates by um, you know, a hereditary nobility. Uh, instead, the the institutions, uh, the public institutions of the colonies um, were much more in that kind of Republican vein in which, you know, citizens could be elected to 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 have 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 political power or be appointed in those positions by the crown. Um, so there's but but that that inside outside thing is 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 there. Um, in terms of modern revolutions, what, what would you add to that? I'm, I'm much less, I've been much less attentive to, um, anything other than kind of broad strokes headlines level, um, in, in more, more recent times. Well, it's, it seems to me, and I am, I am not a historian and, um, so, so everybody should keep that in mind, but it seems to me that the French revolution is more ideological than what we're talking about. There are certainly petty grievances being exploited, but there's a, there's a concern for ideological purity in the, in the French revolution that I don't think you get so much in the American revolution. Um, and, and which I, I don't see, on evidence in Thucydides' account of the Corsoran Revolution, either. Uh, I I do wonder if we can read something like the um, the uprising earlier this year as as something that looks kind of like the Corsoran Revolution. Uh, and I, I don't want to read too much into it because we're still very close to it, and and it's it's difficult to get a kind of historical vantage point on it. But it 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 seems to me that a lot of that was about if not personal grievance, then class grievance. And, and there's an international component to it as well, mm-hmm. although nobody can quite agree on exactly what the international component is in terms of Russia's involvement or, or even China's involvement, I've heard some people say. So I, I, I wonder if 100 years from now, people will look back and see that as, as kind of of a piece with the Corsarin Revolution, although hopefully without the, uh, the long-reaching consequences, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, when, when you, when you dig into things like, uh, uh, the Russian revolution or, or any, any, any old, um, any accounts of, of social upheaval, you'll find, uh, you'll find accounts of, of that person who uses it as an excuse to go after, um, the person they dislike. Yes. Um, you know, witch hunts. Uh, you know, any 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 old thing, right? <laughs> but there there are ideological revolutions, and then there mm-hmm. are there, there are kind of revolutions born out of resentment. And mm-hmm. and I I think one of the challenges of talking about revolutions, especially about ones that have recently happened or failed to happen, is that it can be very difficult to tell when it's ideological and when it's just resentment. Like, what do you make of like the the student uprisings in 1968? Mm-hmm. Like that that to me does not seem ideological. That seems to me to be to be petty resentment. But um, if my own ideological commitments were different, I might feel differently about it. Mm-hmm. I mean. There, it's it's probably it's probably always some kind of mix of those who were kind of 
forming the theory and the goals of what's happening, being more ideologically oriented. Um, but the, the energy, um, the energy of it, uh, the, the, the fists at the front, so to speak, aren't always necessarily the same as the, 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 the ones doing the, the philosophizing. Yeah. Which is a great lesson from Greek history. If you read, if you read very far in Plutarch, you see over and over mm-hmm. again the people who are crafting this are not necessarily on the same page as the people they're using to uh, to accomplish their will. Mm-hmm. And it often yeah. it often turns back around on them in in, in kind of uh, pleasingly symmetrical ways from our distance of thousands <laughs> of years. <laughs> it feels a little bit like a movie sometimes. Mm-hmm. Matthew, what would you I add? Think it, I. I, I I'd just say, first of all, I mean, it, you're right. It is difficult to make a historical assessment of the current time. But we should remember Thucydides, uh, he was not exactly far yes, out from yes, the true. events either. He's, he's, he's trying to make an assessment in the, in the midst of things to some extent. Um, but uh, while you're, I think you're totally right that uh, the people on the ground and the philosophers, Thucydides does say that, they, that each side kind of claims they're acting for ideological reasons. So the one professes to uphold the constitutional equality of the many, he writes, while the other is trying to uphold the wisdom of an aristocracy. So they they are claiming to act on ideological grounds, uh, even though the whole thing is muddied by the international um, influences of, of other people at work in this war. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you're not going to find very many people who are like, yeah, uh, we started a revolution just because we hated you. You, you know, it's, it, there's always, there's always <laughs> going to be some sort of ideological prop. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. the, the, the thing I wonder is years from now. We were bored and greedy and you looked weak. Right. But I, I wonder if, if years from now we're going to look back on the social unrest from last year, be it on the one hand the people who uh, rioted against the mask mandates and on the other hand the, the Black Lives Matter protests and the riots that, that came out of them without exactly being caused by, I don't know. I wonder if, if we're going to look back at that and say, uh, regardless of what you think of the virtues of either of those causes, I, I wonder how much of it was just everybody was cooped up and there was all this rage that we all felt and it, it just kind of burned out um, the way it, the way it did. And I, I wonder if, if maybe what, what seemed to be ideological at the time, um, if, if a lot of it was just kind of, energy with nowhere else to go and, and everybody please understand what i'm not saying i'm not saying that um the black lives matter cause wasn't just or anything like that but i i think some of the riots that came out of it as opposed to the protests i i wonder how much of that really had anything to do with anything other than just naked rage well i think you have to distinguish between the ideas that are at hand and the the, what what powers the what powers the actual unrest? Right. Um, I, I I think one one of the experiences of the masterminds of the various French revolutions was finding out the degree to which um, the pike wielding masses behind them weren't animated by their good ideas, uh-huh. <laughs> as indicated as indicated when the pike wielding masses turned on them. Um, you know, there, there's there's always a certain, um, you know, it, 
perhaps the person who's who's you know giving the speeches or formulating the manifesto or whatever has one particular notion of what they're trying to achieve when you know the boots on the ground with a brick in hand has something very different in mind and there's there's much less of a <laughs> much less of a connection yeah I, I like this idea that there's kind of two revolutions going on there's the ideological revolution and then there's the Oh, I don't know how you want to put it. The mass revolution, the 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 riot underneath the revolution. Those two things aren't exactly the same thing, but they're they're often connected. I don't know. I've always been uncomfortable, even with the American Revolution, um, just because it it seems so clear to me that at the Boston Massacre, the the colonists were at fault. Like they started that, and they they kind of got what they deserved. Um, for for picking the fight with the soldiers, so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just a reactionary uh, all, all the way around, but I'm I'm so deeply uncomfortable with riots that I can't help but be uncomfortable with revolutions, um, just because the one seems to require the other. Am I yeah. am I talking sense? I mean... <sighs> Riots are such uncontrolled forces that uh, I, I, I have a hard time seeing them as meaningful forces of good. You know, uh, it's, uh, yeah. And some something good might happen after everything calms down. Right. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't I don't see the riot itself as a as as in any way a a meaningfully good way of pursuing a change. It's it's too blind, and it's too it's it's too um, extreme, um, un uh, un unguided unjust uh in 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 the way that it uh in the way that it moves um in order to to be to be considered virtuous and the 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 vice of the side that you rise up against doesn't necessarily justify what you do in the in in the name of resistance to it right Uh, but because so much of it is built on anger Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to control. I mean, you, again, I, I I keep thinking of Plutarch. Um, Alcibiades has the control of the masses in Athens until mm-hmm. he doesn't. And then they purge the city. And, and even once they found the culprits for the things they're trying to blame uh, on people, they keep going because exercising their anger just gives them excuse to exercise their anger further. It's not justice. It's something else. And I, I just, I, I, I yeah. think something similar must be going on here in, in the Corsarin Revolution and, and in, in some of our own um, more modern history as well. Matthew, yeah. I, I'm dying to know, what do Canadians, by and large, think about the American Revolution? Um, honestly, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, obviously, we didn't. Uh, rebel in that kind of way and we're pretty happy with the country we've got in in the meantime but there were of course different grievances at different times so I I wouldn't 
I wouldn't be willing to, to give a, a pan-Canadian response to the American Revolution. Yeah, that's fair enough. That might be a cop-out. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's silly to ask for. What, what do most people know? That's, that's silly. Um, well, let's go back to Thucydides. Uh, what I like about this passage is his honesty about what war and revolution do to the souls of the people who are involved in them. And, and especially since he would know what he was talking about since he was a general. Why is it so hard to be a virtuous person when there's violence going on around you? Well, I think Thucydides is, tells us rightly, I think, that uh, external circumstances really do have this serious impact on the moral life and decisions of people living in the midst of those circumstances. So even though uh, Thucydides can say that human nature remains the same at all times and places, um, there's still this recognition that external events like war or revolution or um, even a pandemic, if we, if we might add, um, that these things can affect the moral decisions of people in negative ways. So he, he writes that uh, war takes away the comfortable provision of daily life and is a hard master and that it tends to assimilate men's characters to their condition. I think the Bible kind of gives us similar kind of ideas where it talks about how the external environment in which you find yourself really has a dramatic impact on your moral development. So when St. Paul, uh, quoting uh, a comedy by Menander, uh, tells us that bad company corrupts good morals, he's hitting on this idea that what you're surrounded by really can influence you. Um, there's this idea that a little yeast uh, quickly works its way through the whole batch of dough, which is uh, another metaphor that Paul uses elsewhere in the same book. Um, the idea that being that the more you mix in with the world around you, the more it mixes into you, the more likely you are to be contaminated by it. And that's particularly true when it comes to violence and, and the situation of, of civil war. Uh, the book of Proverbs says that we should make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And while it's, I think, obviously true that if you're deliberately uh, uh, consorting with people who are violent, that that will increase your likelihood to want to be violent yourself. Even this third party, a uh, third person, pardon me, exposure to violence in the society around you can move you in the same kind of ways. Um, Proverbs also says that a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. So it's not just, you know, who you're friends with, the society around you, your neighborhood, your neighbors influence your moral decision making. So when you see your neighbors getting away with violence, you might think that you can get away with it, too. Or, or even if you don't want to get away with violence yourself, you might begin to believe that you need to be violent as well, that you need to fight fire with fire in order to either protect yourself or your family or your cause or, or whatever it is um, around you. Um, and I think that leads us to make the same kind of or to adopt the same kind of violent attitudes and actions, uh, either in defensive ways or in offensive ways. Um, so in this passage that we're looking at, I think that's precisely what Thucydides is describing. There's this growing inability to trust others um, or indeed to act in trustworthy ways towards others. He writes that each man was strongly, pardon me, he writes that each man was strong only in the conviction that nothing was secure, that he must look to his own safety and could not afford to trust others. And when you come to believe that, 
when the world around you acts in this kind of way, it's very easy to fall into the same trap, to be just as violent, just as treacherous, just as duplicitous as the surrounding culture. David, what would you add to that? One of the one of the things that makes civilization work is that it finds ways of mediating between persons that go beyond primal survival, <laughs> right? Um, in uh, in Dante's vision of hell, uh, the circle of the violent is aligned with um, uh, a, a set of impulses that uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it's Canto 11. It's just as they're at the, as they're at the edge of Circle Six and they're perched, ready to enter Seven. Um, Virgil uh, explains that that Circle Seven aligns with uh, an impulse that he calls beast-likeness or brutishness. Um, the John Chiardi translation renders it unhealthfully bestiality, and I end up having to explain everything. <laughs> um, basically, v- violence is the way violence is the way of the beast. The whole point of having a a civilization, a civilized culture, um, is to is to resolve between persons um, those sorts of disputes. That among beasts would be survive would be resolved simply with strength and cunning, right? So, to the degree that you were pushing that you were pushing violence, you were pushing all, you were pushing everyone away from their most humane instincts, quite literally. Um, if I think that you're going to come after me and my family with violence. Um, I will answer that with whatever violence I can muster, and I will feel perfectly justified in that moment to do so. Right. Um, but I would really, really like you to not do that because <laughs> I don't want to have to answer for what facts result at, at when you know when the bloodlust dies down when the red mist clears. Right. But I think part of the problem in the situation we find ourselves in now is that I can scarcely imagine how either side is going to decide that the other one is not out to kill them. Yeah. We've, we've, we've reached this kind of feedback loop where I am convinced that you're going to come for my family. Literally in some cases, right? You're going to come from my family and nothing you could do or say would convince me that you're not. And so you, you end up, it just ends up escalating, escalating, escalating both sides, fearing each other more and hating each other more. One thing that's helped um, me in that and dealing with that sort of thing personally um, is rigorously curating my Twitter feed. Sure. <laughs> Um, I don't watch news. I don't read current events beyond what's local. And I don't, um, 
I, I rigorously unfollow anything in terms of social media as soon as it crosses the line uh, into shouting, regardless of who, who whoever is shouting about what. Is that why you stopped following me on Twitter, David? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you I know, think that's that... not true. I'm, I'm commenting on your stuff all the time. <laughs> But I think the the problem, David, is that you would be an outlier in this kind of thing because most people really are still plugged into social media and or if they're not on social media, they're in, in traditional uh, media on, on various different sides of, of whatever political issue we're talking about. But people, I think, as you said, we get caught in these feedback loops where there's you're, you're convinced people are out to get you because that's what you're being fed with. Yeah every single day every minute of every day yeah well and then the more frightened of the other side one side gets the more they start to say things that frighten the other side and like i really i I do not understand how this ends other than in some sort of horrifying explosion yeah i mean the the ways in which the Corsairan revolution, the way Thucydides describes people who had been who had been family, who had been friends, who had been neighbors, it's not just that they're turning on the people they always hated. It's that in course of time, all forms of social bond break down um, out of mere suspicion. And and since that's a, a question we have here on the set for later, why don't we go ahead and. And talk about that because because I am reminded of our own uh, times by uh, his line, in fine to forestall an intending criminal or to suggest the idea of a crime where it was wanting was equally commended until even blood became a weaker tie than party. And we've all seen people disown their parents or their children for their political and social opinions. I, I suspect that there's a lot of people in our society who would see that as a good thing, even though Thucydides clearly does not. Is there a sense, Matthew, in which the truth does require us to sever our family ties sometimes? I mean, you're, you're raising these two competing ideals here, duty to family and duty to truth. Um, I think it's important to note right off the bat that you kind of have to recognize both duties as good things considered rightly. There are ideals worth defending, they are concepts with strong moral, philosophical, even even biblical foundations. Um, the problem is that, as you say, sometimes these ideals come into conflict. Um, I don't think that's what Thucydides is, is discussing here exactly. Um, but, but when the tension really is between duty to family and duty to truth, uh, truth even as it relates to God sometimes, then what are we supposed to do? It's helpful that Jesus kind of explains and explores these tensions uh, in the Gospels at some length. Uh, and what he kind of tells us, I think, is that it's it's valuable uh, to remember that we're not supposed to just cast off one duty as an excuse to follow another. So you have Jesus who castigates those who abandon their duty to family in favor of self-invented religious duty. So um, he, he talks about, you know, the commandment to honor father and mother and how some people said, well, to their parents, whatever you would have, whatever you would have gotten from me, I'm, I'm giving over to God instead. Um, 
Jesus says, well, that's that's unacceptable. You can't just abandon your duty to your family in this kind of way. At the same time, Jesus rejects the excuse of those who use familial duty as an excuse to not follow him either or to follow truth, if you want to consider it more generally. So when there's the the man who says he would follow Jesus, but he's got to go bury his, his dead father or the man who says, I'll come follow you, but let me go say goodbye to my family at home. Jesus says, no, these aren't okay. So you get these tensions here. Um, and, and frankly, I think sometimes it isn't always possible to fulfill both duty to family and duty to truth in ways that satisfy everyone who's affected by those decisions. When it comes down to it, um, this, Jesus is pretty clear that uh, at least when it comes to following God's truth, we're, we're uh, called to do that, even if it leads to division in family. So that's where the, the rather hard saying of Jesus uh, in Luke 14 comes in, where he says, um, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. So there is a cost to be counted when it comes to following truth, for Jesus is truth in the flesh. Um, and that may well mean choosing whom we're going to ultimately serve. Um, that kind of concept has ramifications in more mundane matters, too. There are situations which allegiance to truth, to moral goodness, to justice, um, these kind of things can result in division in the family. Um, whether we're talking about the literal family or the the wider church or the wider community. Um, but if we circle back around, I think, to, to Thucydides here, we get an example of one of these situations in which truth, uh, pardon me, in which duty to truth should supersede duty to family. Um, in Corsera, the, the people had divided themselves into these two factions, these two political parties, if you want to think of it that way. And the party allegiance, which grew out of this division, allowed members of each group to kind of excuse the excesses of their own party while simultaneously condemning the sins of others. Um, I think it's very easy to fall into that kind of trap, that uh, that mentality of, of my country, right or wrong, or, or if not your country, your party at least. Uh, but when we recognize our duty to truth, uh, we know that we can't we can't act in this kind of hypocritical way. We, we need to see earthly political matters uh, not in these black and white terms as us, the good guys, versus them, the bad guys. Uh, because when we do that, it's, it's just setting the whole society, the whole community up for failure. What, but, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's a difficult thing um, to determine how do you follow truth in ways that don't uh, endanger family ties and what what do you have to add to that michael gosh i don't know i mean there are definitely people whose political opinions i find so abhorrent that i muted them on social media or unfriended them but it's not been anybody who i feel like i have some sort of duty to have a relationship with um i, I do have one family member extended family member who i don't care to see their posts because of what they say. But other than that, like I, I can kind of deal with it. And so maybe I feel like I'm not the person who should be bloviating about this, you know, because, because it's not a, it's not a situation I've really had to, to deal with. On the other hand, I do think there's something kind of monstrous about 
people writing their parents off because of their political opinions. Uh, mm-hmm. However abhorrent, I personally find those political opinions, you know, I filial piety seems like a real thing to me. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, but I, I think it's interesting that Thucydides is noticing the same problem. And, and, you know, the reason, the reason people don't trust blood ties during times of revolution is that blood ties keep you from becoming too extreme because, you know, no matter what your parents, whatever stupid thing your parents believe politically, they're still your parents. And so you can't, you can't just turn your back on them. Once you're able to turn your back on your parents, my goodness, you can turn your back on anyone who disagrees with you about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what's that's what's so terrifying about it. It 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 is the the fruit of extremism and it allows for further extremism. Well, the family is kind of the foundation of community. The moment you can start cutting that out, what what sense of community can really survive? Well, right, right, and one and your family is also totally, uh, you're totally contingent in the sense that like you you did not choose them. It's something completely outside your control, and and so denouncing your denouncing your family is in some sense demanding control over everything except i i mean it is except you often you're just handing it over to whatever your political party is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are my new you are my new parents um great leader and i i should say uh, i'm sure this is happening in the other direction too i have in mind liberal children who are denouncing their trumpist parents um but i, I know that parents are also kind of cutting their kids out of their life because they don't like their politics in the other direction Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder. You, you mentioned earlier the role of the the isolation of of you know the of the times of COVID. Um, what role does that play in um, just rage? You know, kind of moving in, in whatever direction. But one of the things that COVID the COVID time has also done is is not for everyone, but for for many people. Um, it has allowed them to, uh, not allowed, forced them. Let, let me put it that way. It is, it is, it has forced us to relate to each other mainly through these mediated, um, you know, technology centered ways in which we can curate how we, who, who we hear. Um, I'm not, you know, that there, there's a way in which the, you know, Family and neighbor used to be sort of the great given. Your neighbor is who they are. Your family is who they are. And you have to learn how to deal with them, however they might rub you wrong. Um, but in a time in which so many people have been isolated from that social given and are instead interacting through you know, these means that allow us to curate who we interact with. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not just, you know, the, 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 the echo chamber is something that we make too. And that sense that I can easily cut someone out of my life. You know, I don't cut someone out of my life by muting them on Twitter. 
uh, all all I did was limit their ability to yell at me through my computer. <laughs> if I saw them, I would still say hello, you know. Um, but I think the that some as we've moved to thinking of people as 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 icons and 144 character utterances and memes. Um, it becomes much easier to cut someone out of my life when they consist of, you know, odious memes and 144 character, you know, character, you know, utterances that, you know, spark my ire. And instead of human beings that are real and and consist of more than that utterance. Well. Another disturbing thing that happens in revolution is that it does violence to language. Thucydides says that words had to change their ordinary meaning and to take that which was now given them. Uh, that sentence is when I really started paying attention to what I was reading because it seems such an accurate description of our own moment. Is there a sense in which we're going through a mostly bloodless revolution or are there just other social phenomena that do violence to language? Well, the ways that, that language can be manipulated is something that Greeks pay a great amount of attention to, uh, Athenians particularly, because, um, because language is rhetorical, which is political, and so are revolutions, right? So, you know, it, it's very easy for Thucydides to focus on this element, uh, you know, the way that his, his culture is constituted would lead him to, to focus on this. In the same way that he he feels the need to reconstruct powerful speeches, he's going to be very alert to the ways that um, a degrading of of the social fabric is leading to a similar deterioration of communication. Um, other things can lead to can lead to deterioration of of social mores and social ties. Um, the description. Uh, that Thucydides gives of the plague reaching Athens and suddenly people becoming much less concerned with honor and and ties of blood or friendship or neighborhood, but simply kind of seeking their own. Uh, he describes people as suddenly pursuing openly things that previously they would have hidden for fear of disgrace. But now that everyone everyone's just sort of grabbing for what they can um, in the face of imminent death, uh, all, all of these, you know, former, uh, former constraints on, um, civil behavior aren't there anymore. I mean, the difference between the plague time, as he describes it, and this revolution, though, is that because the revolution is political, it uses speech. Um, and so that, and so that same deterioration of mores that shows up in the plague time creeps over into speech, too. Um, I mean, we, we'll probably, I mean, I imagine we'll probably be talking about, um, Orwell, um, or, uh, you know, Weaver's ultimate terms in contemporary rhetoric. But what this made me think of was, uh, the Nicomachean ethics, uh, the ways that people who are sitting at the extreme poles, the vicious poles, right, uh, accuse the, those who are in kind of more moderate positions between the poles of that op of that opposite extreme, um, and the way that he describes, you know, uh, 
being moderate and wanting to kind of withhold judgment until in, until you learn more um, is treated as as cowardice um, and you know hot-headed violence is called you know is called courage or decisiveness um, you know that 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 reminds me of a, a lot of the way that Aristotle talks about uh, how it's it's very easy when you are sitting on one vicious pole um, to identify everything that's um, that's anywhere towards that other pole as simply identifiable with it. Um, but but yeah, it's it's. I think it's a it's a it's a symptom of something that's broader, and because of the way that they use speech in Athens, we see it corrupted there. Um, but similar kinds of corruptions of speech we talk about we see in our own culture um, when we talk about things like um, business or marketing. Right? Um, I, I think what does a culture use speech for? That is the place where you will see the corruption. Right, which is, I mean, why, why I think social media is such a good, um, such a good test case. He says, reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally, prudent hesitation, specious cowardice. Moderation was held to be a cloak for unmanliness, ability to see all sides of a question, and aptness to act on any. And I just think about the way that if you if you point out that maybe, uh, maybe both sides are doing things that aren't entirely great. Uh, people accuse you of both sidesism as if, as if pointing out that neither side was wholly righteous is some sort of fault. I, I mentioned this on our critical theory episode back in the fall, but it, it, it seems to me that um, right now, both sides and there's my both sidesism, both sides of our society want you to take their opponent's language as cynically as you possibly can and to take their own language as innocently as you possibly can, and and that seems to be that seems to be something like what Thucydides is noticing going on in Athens, or in, in Corsica, mm -hmm. excuse me, that um, that it's just this it's this blatant hypocrisy about the way words are used. The the people who are doing it are not fooled. They don't believe it, but they want you to believe it, and uh, it, it's it's very frustrating when you see people doing that, because I don't, I don't know how you can, how you can express um, that hypocrisy without, oh, I don't know. I, I, I really don't have a whole lot of hope. I, I'm sure this episode has made it clear. I don't have a whole lot of hope that uh, society is going to find some way out of this other than, you know, literal violence instead of just linguistic violence. And I think it's interesting to kind of compare then this to Thucydides, like our current situation to Thucydides, rather than something like George Orwell's classic essay, Politics in the English Language. I mean, with Orwell, you get this kind of concern that language is used to obfuscate, to to hide the reality of what you're trying to do, trying to call, trying to affect. But with Thucydides, you get these people who are literally trying to make the other party out to be the devil and trying to instigate real violence. Um, so, I mean, Orwell's essay is, is kind of the, the thing I always think of when we're talking about 
the the use of language or sophistry in a political context but the way it's happening now is is i would say dramatically different at least for internal politics where you you really do have this entrenching of, of the two different sides and again as Thucydides says if you if you try to sit in the middle uh, then you're accused by both and, tr- and they try to tear you down um, it's it's a very uh, as you say unhopeful situation well um Maybe one of you guys can direct our listeners' attention to something in this passage that will give us some sort of hopeful uh, note to end on, uh, or maybe not. Grubbs, what do you got? One of the one of the things I noted in this passage was the way that um, the way that the Cursorian Revolution becomes over over the course of time um, so uh, misdirected, so um, almost instinctual rather than uh, rather than thoughtful. Um, it you know it becomes a series of you know violent you know violent outbursts with rhetorical gestures. Um, I mean. Uh, I, I don't know if there's if there's any kind of if there's any kind of hope. It's that um, eventually the demagogue runs out of emotional fuel, um, which seems 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 to sort of have 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 been the case here. Um, it, it's 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 ultimately not sustainable. Um, it's awful for all the people who are involved. I mean, just you know, go go read go read this chunk of Thucydides, dear dear listeners. Um, but it's not. Uh, it didn't end his world because I don't think that it could. Um, there's there's something not there's something not sustainable um, about it over the long haul. Um, it's 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 terrifying, but. Uh, I don't think it it can't be forever in terms of the long the long march of history, though of course every death is ultimate for the one who suffers it. Well, and I mean also you read enough Thucydides and you you realize that empires end and that's what they do, and so yeah, a long march of history might yep. move on, but who knows what's going to become <laughs> of our poor benighted country. Maybe uh, Canada will step up and be the next great empire. Um, not likely. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you point yeah. our listeners' attention to, Matthew? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not particularly hopeful about the current state of our society either. Um, there's a, a brief little passage near the end of the section we're reading today, where the cities kind of talks about how. The inferior intellects generally were the victors over superior intellects in this revolution. And he says that's because those of low intellect uh, knew they were of low intellect. So they they didn't have the advantage of superior strategy. They knew it. So they just struck first quickly, boldly. Um, the intellectuals, meanwhile, trusted arrogantly in their own intelligence. And so they were caught unprepared because they disdained to act when they could think is the line that uh, Thucydides uses. And I mean, 
on the surface, it's kind of funny to say that the smart people were too dumb to be to, to be strategic in this, where it was the dumb people were very smart about their strategy here. I mean, I, I don't think that means either of them sound. The smart people don't sound particularly smart if we're talking about them in this way. But I think what Thucydides is getting at is not just that a comparison of strategic intelligence, but maybe as well virtuous intelligence or wisdom as potential leaders of the city. So the most virtuous leaders, the ones with these superior intellects, are struck down precisely because they don't take seriously enough the baseness of their opponents, who strike quickly without plan and without strategy. And I can't help but read this passage and think of Yeats' classic line that the best lack, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And so the best hem and haw, and the worst just end up taking over like a flood. And that sounds kind of depressing, but what I think it's it's important to remember that what Thucydides doesn't do is talk about the divine, which is theoretically in the background. Uh, in the midst of all of these situations. So Thucydides is, is interested in what people are doing. And people do terrible things. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a God who is in control and who is with those who are suffering in the midst of, of situations like this. And so rather than necessarily, you know, telling our listeners to look for hopefulness in our current society and that, you know, better things are around the corner, I would just say, look where hope is founded and where it, where it's not going to go away, despite what happens in our current society. Well, you ended on some hope. That's good. <laughs> Listeners, if you uh, have anything to add to our discussion of Thucydides or anything else, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And our website is christianhumanist.org. Next week is our last episode of the semester. Matthew, you're in charge of it. What are we talking about? Yeah, after after kind of the bleakness of today, we'll we'll spend a little time talking talking about happily ever afters. So we're going to talk about the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. Uh, we'll take a, a bit of we'll take a look a, a bit at the background of their classic collection of stories, discuss one story in particular, and really just talk about the genre of fairy tales more generally. I look forward to it. Um. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week, for Matthew Block, for David Grubbs, for the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.